Welcome again to Religionless Church, you ecclesial nuts. In today's episode, we hear from my good friend, Brandon Robertson. Brandon is a pastor and author out in San Diego, and uh, he pastors a church called Mission Gathering, and really great, delightful church. And Brandon is just a delightful human being as well. And he has, I think, really great insights into spirituality and Christianity, especially in the intersection between spirituality and the LGBTQ community. And so Brandon recently wrote a book called Our Witness, in which he kind of edited a number of different stories from LGBTQ Christians from around the world and compiled them together and uh, kind of uses it as a testament to the lives of LGBTQ Christians uh, that are doing great work in the Christian world. So Brandon and I talk about that book. And in this episode, you also hear some really uh, snazzy music by the Chairman Dances. They are, I think, a really interesting group. They kind of have that sort of mountain goats feel, that sort of indie, even a little bit of um, a 60s vibe going on there, right? You can probably hear that. Um, but they have this album called Time Without Measure. And the whole album has a number of different theologians and activists. And, and so the songs are kind of around different theologians and activists in the world. And it's really great. I mean, they really did a, a wonderful job. So you'll hear their music throughout the episode, and I would definitely check them out. So, as always, check out Brandon's work. You can see the links to get connected with him below in the description. You can also get connected to more music by the Chairman Dances, and there's the links below in the description. And again, you can get in connected, in contact, or in connected with my work uh, with Religionless Church, and you can see those links below be very put your attention on the patreon one i would really like for you to do that uh at patreon you can support my work religionless church by kind of a monthly giving and in exchange for whatever it is that you give me monthly uh there's uh different rewards and so you uh could get uh my blog uh, posts or my my whole papers that i release there's exclusive lectures and early previews of episodes. There's all sorts of different things you get. Uh, there's even a possibility to be invited on Religionless Church. So there's a number of different ways that you can get connected uh, and get rewarded for supporting my work. So I really would hope that you uh, could support my work. I mean, even there's one like a $1 a month. $1 a month to support my work. I really think that you could probably make that happen. I would love for you to be able to. So enough about my work and Patreon, uh, and enough of me rambling on. Here's another episode of A Religionless Church. Welcome to another episode of Religionless Church. Today we have Brandon Robertson, and Brandon is an author, a pastor, a thought leader, and a contemplative activist working at the intersections of spirituality, sexuality, and social renewal. So Brandon, you have a number of things going on. You, like, like your bio has said, you're an author, a, a thought leader, a writer. So you play it, you have a number of hats. You've got a lot of personalities um, kind of interplaying all the time. Uh, but I'm curious. Who is Brandon Robertson to Brandon Robertson? 
yeah, I think that's a, a profound question that I feel like all of us <laughs> should probably take a lot of time to contemplate. But um, yeah, I think for me, um, I'm just a guy trying to figure stuff out. Um, hmm. I think at my core, I've always been and continue to be just um, my first book was called Nomad. And that was really kind of an archetype of who I feel like and continue to feel like this person hmm. wandering around with the big questions that we all ask as humans right. and trying to figure out what the best answer is for me. And um, I've also, like you, uh, started blogging and podcasting and all of that stuff, sharing that with the world mm -hmm. and uh, that people resonate with some of that. But yeah, really at the end of the day, I feel like I'm just another sojourner walking, trying to figure it all out. That's great. And uh, I know you've said this before. I don't know how big you are into the Enneagram, but you have mentioned uh, that you're an Enneagram 3. So you think that plays into it as well of what makes Brandon Brandon? Oh, yeah. Enneagram 3 for all of its goodness and its badness. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, <clears throat> that was such a helpful tool. And knowing Enneagram 3, that number and that archetype has been so helpful to me to know mm -hmm. why I'm motivated to be so public and to have this drive to keep creating and doing. And I think, um, yeah, I'm in this process of a period of life where I'm figuring out what are the healthy ways of expressing mm -hmm. my threeness in the world and what are the unhealthy, egoic ways that I've engaged in. And right. uh, there's lots of that as well. So yeah, the Enneagram so, is super. So does it feel like you, there, there's been very few no's that you've given, and especially within the last five years or so since being in, in college and seminary and now pastoring? That's, that that's, certainly seems to be a part of uh, part of just being the dynamic of a three. Yeah, I mean, and some people will look on that as whatever you want to view that as as an ego need, and there's some mm -hmm. of that in there as well. For me, though, I think part of also just being a nomadic type person. Um, you're right. I I don't say no to almost anything <laughs> because I kind of live by a philosophy, at least right now, that. If an opportunity, whatever it might be, pops up in my path, whether or not I feel qualified to do it or whether or not mm -hmm. um, it's something I've thought about doing before, I might as well give it a try because, after all, we're just trying to figure this out. And I don't think that uh, I don't buy into any notion of a particular calling necessarily for anybody. Mm -hmm. I think we're all just trying to figure out where our gifts align the best and where our energies flow the best. And so, for me, over the past few years, it's been politics and church and writing and mm -hmm. everything in between. And uh, and now I'm kind of coming to a place where I have a small set of things that I feel good at and called to. And mm -hmm. uh, maybe a, a few more no's will be coming down the path in the future. <laughs> but uh, yeah. So one of those things that you didn't say no to was writing your book that just recently came out called Our Witness. And uh, before we get to talking a little bit more about that book, I had a, some some questions on your own spiritual journey that you've kind of been on. Uh, so can you tell us how you came from street pe preaching from early on uh, in your, your adolescent years to where you're at now, uh, pastoring? at a, uh, would you identify as a progressive church? Is that a identifier? Yeah. yeah. So how do you, or how did you go from street preaching to pastoring a progressive church in California? 
Yeah, <clears throat> it's a fair question. And I think, though, again, my journey, the one thing that I've learned over the past five to eight years has been the experience that I've had is not an isolated experience at all. It's actually, mm -hmm. it's intergenerational, but it does seem, and I would frame it, in the spirit is doing something in this day and age that's causing a lot of people to go through what I went through. Mm -hmm. But basically, I ended up stumbling into a fundamentalist Baptist church when I was a 12-year-old. Uh, my family wasn't religious, but I mm -hmm. decided to start going to church, mainly so I could have something to do on Sundays. And uh, <laughs> I had a major conversion experience, like so many of us had. Mm -hmm. uh, went down an aisle and prayed a prayer of salvation. And Felt a profound change in my 12-year-old heart and mind. Mm -hmm. um, and within a few months of that, I felt called to be a pastor. Um, and wow. so from 12 years old onwards, I've been pursuing relentlessly this calling to be a spiritual leader, whatever that meant. Um, and initially, that was in that fundamentalist evangelical context where I was street preaching and telling everybody that the gays were going to hell and abortion was murder mm -hmm. and all the things that all the political issues that we said were gospel um, issues. The next and Ray Comforts, really, right? Yeah. I loved Ray Comfort. Oh, my goodness. Kirk Cameron, <laughs> Ray Comfort. Uh, crazy world. But it was a fun time. And I, those skills, the skills you learn as a street preacher are actually invaluable. I highly recommend it. Uh, like New Zealand accents? Yeah, precisely. <laughs> I have a terrible New Zealand accent. But That's right. Like, seriously, if I if I hadn't had those formative experiences of having to knock on doors at 13 years old and tell people, hey, you're going to hell and I have the answers on how you can get out of it, I, I would not be able to be doing anything that I'm doing these hmm. days. So interesting. there is gratitude for that. It's interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. But my shift really came. I went off to Bible college at Moody Bible Institute. Um, and I always say Moody has a really bad model because it's this fundamentalist school in the heart of one of America's largest cities, Chicago. <laughs> and it's literally right smack dab in the middle of downtown. And so I would go to class and be taught all of my neo-reformed theology and then go out into the world. And right outside the doors of Moody, I would often have this cognitive dissonance, this clash mm. where what I believed and what I was being taught didn't match with what I was experiencing in the real world. Um, and so during my time at Moody, I started having that internal crisis, and then I started reaching out to people. Um, and I actually started a podcast um, and started interviewing crazy people like Brian McLaren and Doug Padgett and all of those fun people. Um, mm -hmm. And through that, I discovered that all of these people that I had been told were heretics and evil and outsiders actually seemed to love Jesus more than the people that I was studying with. Huh. And they tended to reflect the values of Jesus more than the values that I was experiencing in Bible college or fundamentalist church. Um, and so really, the long story short is through that proximity, I kept coming into proximity with people that were different than me. And I kept learning more from them. And I kept finding my own spirituality reignited in ways that I didn't think were possible. Um, hmm. and by the time I graduated Moody by the grace of God in 2014, I really had no clue where I was going to go or what I was going to do or if I was still a Christian or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, but then again, still hung around this crowd of people that we've all been so influenced by. Yep. 
and began to figure out that there was a healthy way to reconstruct my faith and to reconstruct a version of whether we want to call it Christianity or spirituality or whatever that was healthy, that was based in reality, that called me into a more authentic posture of living and helped me call others into an authentic posture of living. And so my project for the past however many years since 2014 has been to not only rebuild my own faith, but then in many ways, helping whether it's LGBT people or other burnt out, pissed off evangelicals Mm -hmm. um, to rediscover a faith that might not look anything like what we ever thought it would be, but something that's actually life-giving and that actually does good for our world. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, the more I leaned into to sound cliche, but it's so true, the red letters of Jesus. And the more I leaned into the spirit of Jesus that I think comes through the text, but has also been working throughout history, I've been moved to a more and more progressive, more and more open, more and more inclusive uh, stance. And also, the last thing I'll say is, the one thing I've noticed most profoundly is that my faith used to be rooted in fear. Mm. and once I deconstruct it and I kind of reacquainted myself to this thing that I call God, um, I really found that it's true that if I truly believe that whatever I call God is loving and benevolent and creative, and then that should cast away all fear and that nothing that causes fear comes from that God. And so I'm now in this place where I don't worry about being right or wrong. I don't worry about crossing a boundary. I don't care about orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. None of that matters because God's not going to be angry with me. No ideas are dangerous. And that's just been such a liberating, freeing place to be. So, I remember a few years ago, one of those things that you uh, were working on was this kind of presentation and project on the future of spirituality. So I remember a few years ago, you gave a presentation that just blew my mind because here's this young person that's similar in age to me, uh, thinking about and uh, kind of imagining similar things to what I had been as a, as a young person that I felt like a lot of older people in the room maybe didn't quite, weren't quite on like that cusp or on, on that same sort of trajectory. Uh, but you mentioned in that, uh, in that presentation that the emergent church uh, certainly had a critical step towards a sort of future spirituality. Uh, but now we're at a different step. We're no longer in those emergent years uh, and for a variety of reasons. So my question is, in what ways do you think the emergent church has had gotten us toward the future of spirituality, and in what ways has our context now transcended uh, where the emergents were at one point? Yeah, that's a good question. And again, I always want to preface it by saying those emergent people were the people that, for me and millions of other people, started the process of deconstruction, started the Mm -hmm. process of finding the bravery to step beyond theological boundaries and borders. and so in the late 80s, early 90s, all the way up into 2000, 2005, mm-hmm. you had this movement of people largely from an evangelical worldview 
that started to embrace at the time what was postmodernism right. um, and started asking questions about what is truth and why do we think as Christians that we have truth and what would it look like if we re-engaged with ancient tradition and just all of these really important questions that the evangelical church had stopped asking um, the modern evangelical movement kind of disconnected from tradition they made these very strong truth claims without very much rational thought behind it or connection to um, science or reason or history right and so the American church starts as this group of people who are trying to re-engage um, what the rest of the culture and the rest of society was already engaging in and it was a really helpful movement um, they reimagine new ways of doing church. Um, and I think for 20, 30 years, it was a great place for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, but in my understanding of how philosophy has unfolded, I don't think postmodernism was actually a, a stage in and of itself. I think postmodernism and the emergent movement subsequently was a transition point. It wasn't mm. a thing unto itself, but a moment of transition. And for years, lots of people, lots of our mentors and friends tried to keep breathing life into this thing that was called emergent or convergence or whatever we wanted to call it. Right. Um, but it wasn't a thing. It was a moment. It was a transition point. And I think what we're seeing now is perhaps the beginning of what comes after emergent, which is this Movements of churches that are embracing a really, really open progressive theology, willing to cross boundaries of um, theology and tradition, but also still committed to the basic structure of what it looks like to be a church. Um, one thing the emergent church did, and so many mainline denominations still do, is they have these, I'll talk about my own denomination for a second, the Disciples of Christ. We have this phrase, a thousand different churches in a thousand different ways. On one hand, that sounds really compelling, but on the other hand, the church and the structure of church and religious community has kind of been the same for 4,000 years, and it's mm -hmm. worked for 4,000 years for many people. Um, and so I think some of the excitement and egotism that can come from a postmodern perspective where we just want to deconstruct everything and create something new, we kind of realized that that didn't actually work out too well and that some of these structures are actually helpful. Um, mm. And so on one hand, I think we see this new movement of progressive, inclusive, quasi-evangelical feeling churches that all feel like evangelical churches but aren't mm -hmm. um, all across the country. And I think that's something to take note of. I don't think many of us saw that happening. Um, and then I think the other side of it was the emergent church didn't really consider maybe the goal isn't to create a new kind of religion and Christianity for these postmodern people, mm -hmm. but maybe actually it's okay to foster these people outside of the church and lead them to a different kind of spirituality beyond Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we see that in our modern culture. I think whether that's the increase of people finding holistic spiritual practices and things like soul cycle or right. yoga class or core power or whatever people are finding new ways to get spirituality physical health community um 
And instead of resisting them, trying to keep Christianity alive, I think uh, Christian leaders would be best postured to say, let's create communities that help people in a transition period um, as they leave conservative and move towards progressive. But then also let's keep the door open and say, hey, Christianity is not the end goal. Jesus didn't call us to make Christians. He called us to make people that follow in the disciple path. And that path can be followed far outside of Christianity. Um, and also the last thing I'll say is as I'm saying all of this, I'm also aware that a lot of the emergent people had these insights as mm. well. Mm -hmm. I think um, that's the key is that the emergent conversation was always a conversation and it still right. is a conversation. Um, and so I want to engage it with that humility as well and say, let's keep talking and keep playing around and seeing what we can come up with. To help the most people and to create the most beautiful world we can. So. What would I say? It doesn't matter anyway. Let's move on to your book, Our Witness. So, just recently sure. came out. What inspired you to write Our Witness? Yeah, so. <clears throat> Basically, uh, while I was at Moody, I also kind of had this realization that I, at the time, I would have said I struggled with my same-sex attraction, um, mm -hmm. but basically I discovered that I was LGBT, and um, after I left Moody, I discovered this whole movement of gay Christians, this mm. movement of people that had been on the margins of all different Christian traditions, that had a deep, vibrant faith, and yet who were being so excluded and marginalized, even though we had so many gifts to offer the church, even though we had just such a powerful testimony about the power of our faith. Mm. Um, and so I spent years, and my big project kind of over the past four years has been to continually engage with the conservative or traditionalist Christian church and try to foster spaces of conversation, spaces of empathy with non-affirming Christian leaders because I firmly believe that when people come into proximity with those they experience as the other, empathy mm -hmm. begins to form. And when empathy forms, then we begin the process of openness. And that's where you can really have a change of heart or mind or theology. Right. Um, and so our witness, the book came because one of the projects that I was doing to engage in this process was the Q Conference, which is a large evangelical event, came to Denver where I was living, okay. and they were focusing on, like so many conservative Christian conferences do, talking about the LGBT issue without any openly LGBT people present. Right. Um, and that really frustrated me. And so we basically rented out the church across the street from the conference venue, and we invited LGBT speakers from around the country to come in. And then we canvassed outside of the Q conference and invited all of the conference attendees to, instead of going to these conversations where they talk about LGBT people, to come over to our venue and hear the stories of LGBT people. Hmm. Uh, and we called that event Our Witness. And about 200 people from the event uh, came over and sat with us for four hours as we had about 12 different people sharing their stories and their journeys to reconcile faith and sexuality. And after seeing the impact of that and the conversations that formed around these conservative Christians interacting with real living, breathing LGBT people, 
I really became convinced that we needed to create a resource um, that not only uplifted the stories of LGBT people, but also pulled in a compelling progressive theology of inclusion and also included psychological and sociological data that showed the tangible harm that non-inclusive teaching had on hmm. LGBT people who heard it. Because that was the other thing we discussed is that most conservative Christians don't know that there are literal psychological studies that have been done over the past 10 years that show that if I sit in a church as I'm growing up and hear, even if it's once or twice, a pastor make a comment about gay people being fundamentally flawed, the psychological damage that that actually does to a person hmm. is takes decades to correct and it leads to higher rates of suicide, right. depression, all sorts of things. And so um, I put out a call and a couple hundred people sent in their stories and uh, I basically reviewed hundreds of stories over the course of a year and compiled them together into this book with a theology and the psychological, sociological data. And mm -hmm. we released a UK edition of this book about five months ago, and okay. it was UK and Ireland stories. And then this past week, we released the US edition. Um, and yeah, we're really wow. excited to get it out into the world and get it in front of conservative Christians and see what we can see what kind of conversation we can start. So yeah, what, what sort of organizing do you do to to uh, basically get that resource into the hands and um, eyes and ears of a more conservative church or conservative leader or conservative person that might be that might not be initially receptive um, or willing to engage that resource. So what, what is the sort of strategy or organization that you're doing to um, make that happen? Yeah, so we have two strategies that I believe in. Um, one is we're pursuing, basically we have some sponsors and things like that that are going to help us. Over the past five years, I've gotten to have relationships with some of the pastors of the largest churches in the country mm -hmm. and conservative leaders who know me, know some other LGBT Christians. And we're going to get the resources and hopefully not only send them copies of the book, but also send in the book a note from an LGBT Christian whose story was in this book that lives within their region and invite them into a coffee meeting or a dialogue um, for some of the leaders, for some of the more prominent, whether it's a Southern Baptist leader or something like that. Right. Hopefully we'll have the resources to actually go not only and bring the book to them physically, but engage in a conversation there oh. and then the other side of it is i think just having the book out there and just getting it as much attention in different places as we can it takes away any excuse that any conservative christian leader has to not engage with lgbt mm, people the right. literature gets out there the more stories that are uplifted people can't be innocent anymore they right. they have resources they're here and so um, I think part of it is all of our authors that are part of this book, all 20 people whose stories are here, are really committed to raising up these stories on social media, raising it up on our email lists, and seeing what comes of it. Um, and so we're doing both that kind of direct approach and the indirect approach, and hopefully we get some good conversations out of it. smoking a cigarette. The curtains were thrown open. 
So what did you learn about yourself as you wrote and edited Our Witness? That I'm not a good editor. <laughs> <laughs> How about that? Um, seriously, I'm a terrible spelling and grammar and then trying to edit other people's work. It was just bad. We're but, in the same um, boat. We're in the same boat, brother. Yeah. And it was literally by, I put out another call and I was like, listen, I got myself in way too deep. I went on Facebook and I said, if you are good at grammar, please help me. And so about eight <laughs> people came and helped me edit it, edit the stories. It was good. But I also learned, I think, and it might not seem that profound, but it is for the LGBT person, that all of our stories are remarkably similar, that we all have such hmm. a remarkably similar experience. Uh, we all feel the same emotions. And the reason that was such a big moment of realization for me is because almost every story in this book and every LGBT Christian you'll talk to will say when they were going through their coming out process, they felt like they were the only one. They felt like there were no other Christians in their church or in their community that were struggling with whatever their gender identity or sexuality. And just there's common ebbs and flows in the stories in every single one of them from the impact and the shame that comes from having to hide your sexuality and also try to keep God happy to the liberation and the joy. And I don't know if your podcast allows cussing, but the That's fuck totally you fine. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. There's that real like middle finger moment that we all go through when it's like, I've reconciled my faith and sexuality and I don't mm -hmm. need, I don't need your approval. Mm -hmm. And then there's this moment of, reconciliation for most of the stories where interesting okay there's a coming together back into the church and engaging again and so that sense of solidarity was refreshing and humbling and um, i hope many other lgbt christians will find that as well So that's one, that's one thing that you hope to be received by the reader uh, of the book. What, what are some other things that you hope the, the, a reader would receive uh, from reading this, this book? Yeah, I think one of my other points in writing this book was we're, there's this new generation of millennials that are writing books, particularly about sexuality um, and Christianity. Mm -hmm. and up to this point, the new books that have come out have all basically tried to advocate for keeping a conservative evangelical theological paradigm and changing our interpretation of maybe six verses of scripture. And right. if we just change our interpretation and keep the rest of the paradigm, everything's okay. We can just go on. And My experience has been, one, I don't know almost anyone who has changed their mind about sexuality and the Bible's biblical interpretation about what the Bible says about sexuality and gender and kept a conservative evangelical paradigm hmm. because it is a slippery slope in the best way possible. Right. The problem isn't the six verses. The problem is the entire theology of evangelicalism and traditional Christianity. And hmm. so in this book, I kind of, I lay out my case of how I came to be affirming and it basically is saying this, that every aspect of the faith that I inherited as a fundamentalist 
was tinged with patriarchy, was tinged with these oppressive mechanisms. And unless we name that and own that and work hard to dismantle that, which also means recreating a new theological paradigm, um, I don't think we're ever going to be able to see any major movements in the church of inclusion and affirmation because they're still trying to function in the same old paradigm. Um, and so I hope that people will read my take on it and whether or not they agree or disagree, feel the liberation to say, I don't need to try to play by anybody's theological rules. Um, mm. Instead, I can get creative with how the Bible talks about sexuality and gender or what the spirit of God might be saying today that contradicts what's in the Bible. Um, I just think that freedom and liberation is something most people don't ever feel they have permission to do theologically. And um, I hope that this is a little bit of an invitation to explore and experiment. That, that, I, I appreciate that because it, it does seem like, even, even for a, a straight Christian like myself, uh, yeah. that when, when a more conservative-minded Christian encounters this, they, they might be like wanting to be open to uh, affirming and uh, of lgbtq people and their relationships but you're right they kind of have this fear of the slippery slope because they assume that they will get to the end of that slope and and they find that for whatever reason i don't know what it is about the end of that damn slope but they think that the end of that slope means that you are going to be a morally rehensible or um, reprehensible or deplorable person and yep. that just simply isn't the case. In fact, what you'll find out is there is no end of the slope. Like, that doesn't exist. You'll just keep going down and down. And I think what you're talking about uh, with what you were doing with, with Our Witness is that you, you're revealing stories that suggest that, that people will get onto this slippery slope. In fact, we, it, it reveals that we all are on the slippery slope at some point on the slope. And that there is no end of the slope. And as you keep going down that slippery slope, it doesn't mean or it's not contingent that you are going to become a morally reprehensible or deplorable person. Like that doesn't, that's not the case. And I think for a lot of people who are wanting to be open to affirming LGBTQ people and their relationships, this is a resource that will reveal to them that 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 fear is unwarranted and it just simply isn't true to reality. So I really appreciate yeah. that that's some of the work that you're doing with it. I don't know if you have any other thoughts on what I was just saying, but yeah. Yeah, I think you nailed it. And I think, again, I keep coming back to it. You said it, though, that so many people are just ground in their theology because of fear. They can't move because they're paralyzed by fear, whether that's fear of mm -hmm. God or fear of being forced out of their community. And I think almost every story in this book is an LGBT person having to overcome that fear, to give up a faith rooted in fear. And as soon as there's no fear, as soon as I'm not worried about going to hell, as soon as I'm not worried about being wrong, as soon as I'm not worried about right. losing my community because I've already lost my family and everything else, I've come out. Uh, you taste such a beautiful liberation that is rooted in what I would call the love of God. and. When you live from that place of love, love casts out all fear. Like you live in this mm -hmm. paradigm where I, again, as a pastor now, it's so exciting to stand up before my congregation and 
say what I think and say, also, I could be wrong and you don't have to agree with me. And none of this ultimately matters. We're talking about the thing that we can't understand. It's the infinite, the eternal. Mm -hmm. And so let's just have fun as we try to explore and do this together. Um, and so that's my broader theological agenda in life. It's just yeah, it's right. with this book and beyond. Dispel fear to help people take religion less seriously in some regards. So our witness also reveals what there has been for a number of years, that LGBTQ plus Christians have been supporting the church in their various faithful ministries and spiritualities. Um, at the same time, and this is what I find interesting, that because LGBTQ plus people have affirmed their own sexuality, uh, as they support the church through their faithful ministry and spirituality, it also means that these same people are subverting the cis-heteropatriarchal force that certainly inhabits the church. So in yeah. writing our witness, what ways did you find LGBTQ plus Christians subvert the church in their faithful support of the church? I think what you just said nails it. I mean, I think the <laughs> very fact that the LGBT people are arguably, in the conservative evangelical world at least, one of the most marginalized groups still on a theological basis. Right. Um, and yet, the fact that there are things like the Q Christian Fellowship and the Reformation Project and uh, people that are involved in open or convergence mm -hmm. and all these different denominations that are filled with LGBT people, we're talking thousands upon thousands upon thousands of LGBT people, Mm -hmm. that are worshiping even when the church says you can't worship, that are preaching when the church says you can't preach, that are serving when the church says you can't serve. That is the act of resistance. And mm. I end this book, and I've kind of at the end of all of my talks on LGBT inclusion for the past few years, I've come back to this weird dialogue that happened in the book of Acts, where basically the story goes that um, the apostles, this group of uh, Greco-Roman leaders were trying to lock up the apostles for preaching the gospel. And mm -hmm. one of them steps up and says, hey, if what they're doing is from God, we won't be able to stop them. And we'll actually find ourselves opposing God. Um, and this idea that I think is so powerful is that the church is intentionally trying to stop LGBT people from being the church, from following Jesus, from mm -hmm. serving God, is their language. And I think that postures them fundamentally against God, or what they call God. Right. Um, and the more we call that out, and I love doing it, man, standing up in front of a group of non-affirming people and saying, listen, we're already the church. Yep. We're already doing the business of being a follower of Jesus. You can't stop us. And in fact, you're what could be said to be blaspheming the Holy Spirit, if we want to use the mm, definition of right. the gospel. You're saying that which is of God isn't from God. Um, that is like keeping hot stones on, on the conservative church. It's like, mm -hmm. own up to this ridiculousness. How could we ever imagine that Jesus would say, oh, this person who is 
serving the poor and speaking up for the voiceless, well, because they're gay, it doesn't count. None of that is good. Like, that's absurd. Um, and so I, I think, like you said, just the fact that LGBT people, that there are these stories to tell, that there are LGBT people that are excited to talk about their faith, mm-hmm. that are in churches, that is the most subversive and powerful. And one of the things that I think will deconstruct the patriarchal toxic systems that have held Christianity hostage for so long. So. Right. And it, I just, I love the fact that as subversive as that is, it's all done by people who are supporting the church. They're, they're the people that are in ministry. They're, they're the people that are holding this whole thing together at the same time subverting, yeah. uh, maybe not the church at large, but a, a, a toxic version of, of an expression of, of church. And they're certainly subverting um, that expression. So the, the, the podcast is called Religionless Church, which is a kind of play on words of Bonhoeffer's Religionless Christianity, which you're a good MTH uh, grad. Yeah, I, I'm sure you know a little bit about Bonhoeffer and his work. Uh, so Religionless Church or Religionless Christianity cr- critiqued uh, the German Christendom uh, that was uh, patriarchal, nationalistic, uh, and, and homophobic, and obviously racist, uh, especially in, in Nazi Germany. Uh, and in many other ways, uh, um, marginalized, marginalizing um, groups of people. And in Bonhoeffer's religionless Christianity w- was certainly a critique on uh, that uh, that uh, form of Christendom um, that marginalized people groups. So, in what ways do you think that our witness speaks to religionless Christianity and critique of American Christendom? I know we've talked a little bit about that, but Let's hone in on that a little bit more. So what are kind of the ways that religionless Christianity kind of speaks to what you're doing with our witness uh, by critiquing Christendom? Yeah, I don't know that our witness goes completely here, but it's definitely pointing in the direction. Mm-hmm. I mean, my my perspective is, um, and I actually just preached a message on it this past Sunday, that I think Christianity is the problem. Um, okay. I yeah. think... Um, this thing called Christianity, which was an invention of empire, um, mm. like that mm-hmm. is the problem. And the call is to be disciples of some renegade first century rabbi named Jesus. Um, right. And I think so many LGBT people, a lot of, I mean, the reality is a lot of the people who wrote in this book, they are the church, but they don't go to an institutional church. And we know all the numbers show that institutional church is hemorrhaging people, but Christianity, in broad terms, right. isn't necessarily hemorrhaging people. What's happening, I think, is we're realizing that this thing called Christianity that's dominated Western culture for 1700 years is toxic and is evil and has done harm, more harm than good, but there's always been a faithful remnant of people who said, I don't really care about the trappings and the systems and the money. I just care about this message that Jesus had that actually helps me live a better life and create a better life for other people. Mm. Um, And so many LGBT Christians that do life outside of the institutional church 
I think are just committed to living whole lives, which is what Jesus called us to do, mm. to loving our enemies, which is what Jesus called us to do. Um, and I just, I think we're going to see more and more people coming into this place of saying, I'm not a Christian. I don't identify with Christianity. I don't care about converting anyone to Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am really interested in living a healthy, whole, just, and generous life. Um, mm-hmm. I can do that as a Christian or a Buddhist or a Muslim or an atheist or whatever. Um, and so I love the idea of religionless church and religionless Christianity. Mm-hmm. And I think I would just emphasize the religionless part of it, that religion can be good. Um, the traditions mm-hmm. and the stories and the myths can be good and are good. but religion in and of itself and Christianity in and of itself doesn't bring life to anyone. Um, Mm -hmm. But do you think following the way of Jesus does actually bring life? Um, And yeah, I feel like I'm rambling now, but no, that's great. I I love that. It, it, I, I appreciate that you've, you, you made that uh, distinction that, um, and, and this is something I've thought about. And a lot of people have thought about that. Christianity is, in an invention that came hundreds of years after Jesus and even after many of those early followers. Uh, and, and so this is something that uh, was completely, the Christianity, the religion, was something that completely w- was a cultural product of empire. And so it, it, it makes sense of why it has used the Christian religion as its means to defend so many atrocities that the empire does. It's because Christianity, as we know it, as a religion, was, was, uh, was created out of that and was meant to, yeah. meant to do that very thing. So if, if, that's, right. if that's the system in which it was created, then it's actually producing the results uh, that it was meant to do. And uh, so we, it's a matter of deconstructing that into what, we, what, what the, the narratives and the values and principles and cares and concerns and passions that were, were the very first uh, ruminations in, um, that, that Jesus and, and his early followers laid down. Those are the things that we need to, we, we may need to go back to, but not, not in that sort of like way that, oh, if we just could go back to the early church, we'll figure it out. Like, I don't think that's the point. Yeah. But there certainly are things that we, we've completely missed the mark the, the original yeah. version of, or the original definition of sin, at least according to my conservative folks, uh, that if we can go back to that and we can kind of reimagine what that looks like in 2018, then maybe we'll yeah. start having a better idea of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. All right, that's besides the point. Here's the last question. Uh, what, uh, what ways can the listeners connect with you and your work? Yeah, I think uh, the best ways are the social media I'm addicted to way too much. Um, so Instagram, <laughs> Brandon J. Robertson. Um, and then I'm on Facebook and Twitter, Brandon Robertson. And there you can find my website and all the other stuff that I'm up to in the world. So, but it's Brandon with an A. So just remember that. Keyword, yeah. Uh, the key letter. Um, which I'm sure, like, there's not many Brandons out there that are with an A, right? Like, there's, there's not too many of you. There's not, which is good, but it's also sad that 
there's so like people will search Brandon Robertson and there are tons of Brandon Robertson. Right. I'm sure there's... Website, so yeah. <laughs> like when you, when you were a little Brandon kid and would... you would go to like those little touristy areas and you, there was like the little keychains or whatever that had your name and you were like, you get all the way to the O and you're like, ah, oh, not again. Never any, never. Mom had to be unique. It ruined my life. Just kidding. Were you able, were you able to like on that little O to like, just get a little line, like were you able to, with a Sharpie or something, get that little extra line that makes the A? Sometimes. Now I actually, I, I like St. Brendan, uh, B-R-E-N-D-E-N. Okay. And so um, you can sometimes find Brendan on keychains. And so I just use that instead, but. There you go. Yeah. There's your alternative. Sweet. Well, thank yeah. you again so much, Brandon. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. And uh, I love all the work that you're doing. Uh, and I, I, you've got me. You, you've always got me at your back if you need me. So I, I love what you're doing. And uh, pray that uh, your, the pastoring and, and the writing just continues to, to uh, breed life into you and into others. Well, thank you. And thanks for what you're doing. It's awesome stuff. There's a There's a Isn't Brandon wonderful? I, I think that as a millennial, I mean, I think he's only 25 or 26 years old. Uh, as a millennial, as a gay man, uh, as a gay pastor, I really think Brandon has some really innovative and, and forward-thinking things to say about Christianity, and especially about Christianity uh, in its relationship to the LGBTQ community. And I really wish the best for Brandon. So get connected to his work. You can check out his links in the description below. And how about the chairman dances? Aren't they great? I, I had never heard of them until I started editing this episode and when they were recommended to me uh, by a actually a Twitter friend uh, who his name is Luke. He, I think, collaborates with the chairman dances. But anyway, uh, I got, they recommended, uh, or I was recommended to them, and I'm really pleasantly surprised. I really think that they, just, even their work is really well produced, their music's really well produced, and they've got some really interesting concepts that don't seem to be uh, dealt with much in music, so I'm really excited to listen to more of, of their work. So definitely check them out. You can look at their links below uh, in the description and uh, get more connected to all of their music. It's so great. And then also, again, you can get connected to my work, particularly through Patreon. Uh, there's just so much more material that I'm releasing on there, and you can get connected with all the content that I'm creating, not just Religionless Church the, with the podcast, but all the work that I'm doing. Uh, you can get connected. So check out my Patreon, check out my website, and get connected with me on Twitter and on Instagram and Facebook. I would love to hear more from you and get connected with you. You all have busy lives, so I'll end right now. Thank you again for listening to Religionless Church. <laughs>